Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner. Really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Welcome everyone to Too Good to Be True, and thank you for taking the time to listen. The subject for today's show is infamous acquittals. Before we start getting into details, let's just briefly talk about psychic insight and how we apply it. We choose the subject and research it, and based on that research, we determine what we think needs to be explained by creating a series of questions. Then Justina provides psychic insight to answer those questions. The psychic insight is narrated towards the end of the show. Accepting the psychic insight is a matter of individual belief. Now let's go through the disclaimers. Here are the disclaimers. Neither of us claim to have any expertise in any subjects that we discuss. We relate information we find through research and the psychic insight. We are always delighted to hear from the listeners. The show only lasts an hour. We don't have the time to present exhaustive research on any topic. This means that there will be information that we miss. We want to provide a basis for the psychic insight. We don't care if the theory turns out too good to be true, as the show name suggests. We're only interested in finding out more of the truth about topics. Spirit can only relate insight that is appropriate for our time and history. Free will cannot be affected. Only comments that are appropriate for our time can be given through the psychic insight. Much of the subject matter and shows may have already been covered many times in other media. We want to look into subjects in a new, different way and be thought-provoking. We are not so good with pronouncing names, we apologize. We have no opinion on the guilt or innocence of any defendant in any case we are to discuss. As three of the acquitted we are going to discuss are still alive, we may only receive limited answers, especially regarding guilt or innocence. And neither of us have any particular knowledge of criminal investigations, forensic science, or legal procedures. If we have misstated anything, we apologize. Why don't we start with Lizzie Borden, who was acquitted of murder in 1893, having been accused of killing her father and stepmother in 1892. 1892 was a long time ago. Why should anyone care about the outcome? Because the story of Lizzie Borden, who was 32 at the time of the murders, remains in popular culture and never seems to go away. The famous trials website includes a popular ditty about the victims, Andrew and Abby Borden. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. So the popular belief is that Lizzie Borden killed her parents with an axe. What is the background to the story? The following is from the biography website, quote, Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on July 19, 1860, in Fall River, Massachusetts, to Sarah and Andrew Borden. Soon thereafter, Sarah died. Andrew remarried three years later to Abby Durfee Gray. The family lived well. Andrew was successful enough in the fields of manufacturing and real estate development to support his wife and two daughters, Emma and Lizzie, and employ servants to keep their home in order. Both Emma and Lizzie lived with their father and stepmother into adulthood. The relationship between the Borden sisters and their stepmother, Abby, was not close. 
They greeted her as Mrs. Borden and worried that Abby's family sought to gain access to their father's money. Emma was protected over her younger sister and together the two sisters helped to manage the rental properties owned by Andrew. The family attended the Congregationalist Church, an institution in which Lizzie was particularly involved. Unquote. What happened leading up to the murders? The following is from Wikipedia. The story starts in 1892 when the murders were committed. Quote, Tension had been growing within the family in the months before the murders, especially over Andrew's gifts of real estate to various branches of Abby's family. After their stepmother's sister had received a house, the sisters had demanded and received a rental property, the home they had lived in until their mother died, which they purchased from their father for $1 a few weeks before the murders. They sold the property back to their father for $5,000, equivalent to $142,000 in 2019. The night before the murders, John Vinicom Morse, the brother of Lizzie and Emma's deceased mother, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew. Some writers have speculated that their conversation, particularly about property transfer, may have aggravated an already tense situation. For several days before the murders, the entire household had been violently ill. A family friend later speculated that mutton left on the stove for use in meals over several days was a cause, but Abby had feared poisoning, as Andrew had not been a popular man." Unquote. What were the circumstances of the murders? Here's more from Wikipedia. Quote, John Morse arrived in the evening of August the 3rd and slept in the guest room that night after breakfast the next morning in which Andrew, Abby, Lizzie Morse and Lizzie Morse and the board's maid, Bridget Maggie Sullivan, were present. Andrew and Morse was, were, went to the sitting room where they chatted for nearly an hour. Morse left around 8.48 to buy a pair of oxen and visited his niece in Fall River, planning to return to the Borden home for lunch at noon. Andrew left for his morning walk sometime after 9am. Although the cleaning of the guest room was one of Lizzie's and Emma's regular chores, Abby went upstairs sometime between 9am and 10.30am to make their bed. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing a killer at the time of the attack. She was first stuck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear, causing her to turn and fall down on her on the floor, creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct hits to the back of her head, killing her, unquote. So Abby and Andrew were not killed at the same time, with Andrew having left for a walk. Again from Wikipedia. Quote, when Andrew returned at around 10.30 a.m., his key failed to open the door, so he knocked for attention. Sullivan went to unlock the door, finding it jammed. She uttered an expletive. She would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this. She did not see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. This was considered significant as Abby was already dead by this time, and her body would have been visible to anyone on the, second, on the home second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father had, been asked, had asked, where, asked her where Abby was and she had replied that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. Lizzie stated that she had, then, she had then removed Andrew's boots and helped him into his slippers before he lay down on the sofa for a nap, an anomaly contradicted by the crime scene photos which show Andrew wearing boots. She then informed Sullivan of a department store sale and permitted her to go, but Sullivan felt unwell and went to take a nap in, the, in her bedroom instead. Sullivan testified that she was in her third floor room resting from cleaning windows when just before 11.10am she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, come quick, father's dead, somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on a couch in the downstairs sitting room, struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyeballs had been split cleanly in two, suggesting that he'd been asleep when attacked. His still bleeding wounds suggested a very recent attack. Detectives estimated his death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m., Was the murder weapon found? More again from Wikipedia, quote, In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes and a hatchet head with a broken handle, 
the hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that on the other bladed tools, appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time. Unquote. So what happened at the trial? The biography website provides an outline. Quote, Lizzie was indicted on December 2nd, 1892. Her widely publicised trial began the following June in New Bedford. Lizzie did not take the stand in her own defence, and her inquest testimony was not admitted into evidence. The testimony provided by others proved unconclusive. On June 20th, 1893, Lizzie was acquitted of the murders. No one else was ever charged with the crimes." Unquote. At the inquest held soon after the murders, Lizzie Borden had been prescribed morphine to help calm her nerves. This may or may not have led her to provide inconsistent testimony, but gathering useful physical evidence from a crime scene must have been difficult back then. I expect that in 1892, forensic science was pretty primitive. There was a complication. The crime scene was not protected, with thousands of townspeople visiting, with the result that any useful evidence would have been destroyed or made unreliable. During the week before her arrest, Lizzie Borden burned a dress that she claimed was stained with paint. Prosecutors later alleged that the dress was bloodstained and had been destroyed deliberately. What happened to Lizzie Borden after her acquittal? She was ostracized by the local community, dying of pneumonia on June the 1st, 1927, age 66. She died with considerable wealth, leaving $30,000, approximately $600,000 in today's terms, to a local animal rescue. What is the next famous acquittal? O.J. Simpson in 1995, which involved interrupting regular broadcasts when the verdict was announced. We've only, we only have time to scratch the surface of the trial and the aftermath. Not everyone knows about O.J. Simpson. Who is he? The following is from Wikipedia. Quote, Orenthal James Simpson, born July 9, 1947, nicknamed The Juice, is an American former football running back, broadcaster, actor, advertising spokesman and convicted felon. Once a popular figure with the U.S. public, he is now best known for being tried for the murders of his former wife, Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ron Goldman. Simpson was acquitted of the murders in criminal court, but was later found responsible for both deaths in a civil trial. Unquote. What happened to acquit him? The History website discusses events leading up to the October the 3rd, 1995 acquittal. Quote, At the end of, the sensational, of a sensational trial, former football star O.J. Simpson is acquitted of the brutal 1994 double murder of his estranged wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend Ronald Goldman. In the epic 252-day trial, Simpson's dream team of lawyers employed creative and controversial methods to convince jurors that Simpson's guilt had not been proved beyond a reasonable doubt, thus surmounting what the prosecution called a mountain of evidence implicating him as the murderer. Orenthal James Simpson, a Heisman Trophy winner, star running back with the Buffalo Bills and popular television personality, married Nicole Brown in 1985. He, reported regularly, he reportedly regularly abused his wife and in 1989 pleaded no contest to a charge of spousal battery. In 1992, she left him and filed for divorce. On the night of June 12, 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were stabbed and slashed to death in the front yard of Mrs. Simpson of Mrs. Simpson's condominium in Brentwood, Los Angeles. By June 17, police had gathered enough evidence to charge O.J. Simpson with the murders. Simpson had no alibi for the time frame of the murders. Some 40 minutes after the murders were committed, a limousine driver sent to take Simpson to the airport saw a man in, a dark, in dark clothing hurrying up, the, hurrying up the drive of his Rockingham estate. A few minutes later, Simpson spoke to the driver through the gate phone and let him in. During the previous 25 minutes, the driver had repeatedly called the house and received no answer. A single leather glove found outside Simpson's home matched the glove found at the crime scene. 
In preliminary DNA tests, blood found on the glove was shown to have come from Simpson and the two victims. After his arrest, further DNA tests would confirm this finding. Simpson had a wound on his hand and his blood was a DNA match to drops found at the Brentwood crime scene. Nicole Brown Simpson's blood was discovered on a pair of socks found at the Rockingham estate. Simpson had recently purchased a stiletto knife of the type the coroner believed was used by the killer. Shoe prints in the blood at, at the Brentwood, at Brentwood matched Simpson's shoe size and later were shown to match the type of shoe he had owned. Neither the knife nor shoes were found by the police. Unquote. What was the timeline of events for June 12, 1994? I think before we can go into that, we have to go into a break. Yes, we'll continue after this short break, and you're listening to Too Good to Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xcbn.net. Genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas. To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Welcome back to Too Good to Be True. And before the break, we're discussing the timeline of events on June 12, 1994. Dad, can you please continue? The biography website provides a timeline. Quote, 6.30 p.m. After attending her daughter's dance recital, Brown has dinner with friends and family at the Brentwood restaurant, Mezzaluna, where Goldman works as a waiter. Brown's mother accidentally leaves her eyeglasses at the restaurant and Goldman volunteers to stop by Brown's house to drop them off. 10.41 p.m. to 10.45 p.m. Brian Cato Kalin, who is Simpson's house guest at his Rockingham mansion just a couple of miles down the road from the Browns' home, hears a thumping noise on the opposite side of, the, of his wall and goes outside to investigate. 10.50 p.m. to 10.55 p.m. A neighbour spots Brown's white Akita by itself, barking with bloody paws. 11.01 p.m. Waiting since 10.25 p.m. Limousine driver Alan Park sees Simpson exit his house. A few minutes later, Park drives Simpson to the Los Angeles International Airport, LAX, for his flight to Chicago. 11.45 p.m., Simpson takes off to Chicago. 12.10 a.m., Brown's dog leads neighbours to the dead bodies of Goldman and Brown, which lie near the gate. 4.15 a.m., Simpson checks into a hotel in Chicago. 4.30 a.m., Police arrive at Simpson's Rockland Mansion to inform him of Brown's death, but instead discovered a bloodstained Bronco and a bloody glove that matches one pound near Goldman's body. 10.45 a.m. With a search warrant in hand, the police search Simpson's mansion and find even more blood traces on the property, including in his Bronco. 12 p.m. Returning to Los Angeles after being informed of Brown's death, Simpson arrives at his mansion where he's handcuffed and taken into the, into the police station where he is questioned for hours, unquote. According to the history website, blood, hair and fibres from Brown and Goldman were found in Simpson's car and at his home. 
Simpson flew to Chicago to play golf at a corporate convention. What happened at the trial? Here's more from the history website. Quote, Simpson's subsequent criminal trial was a sensational media event of unprecedented proportions. It was the longest trial ever held in California, and courtroom television cameras captured the carnival-like atmosphere of the proceedings. The prosecution's mountain of evidence was systematically called into doubt by Simpson's team of expensive attorneys who made the dramatic case that their client was framed by unscrupulous and racist police officers. Citing the questionable character of, defect, of Detective Mark Fuhrman and alleged blunders in the police investigation, defense lawyers painted Simpson as yet another African-American victim of the white judicial system. The jurors, jurors' reasonable doubt grew when the defense spent weeks attacking the damning DNA evidence, arguing in overly technical terms that delays and other anomalies in the gathering of evidence called the findings into question. Critics of the trial accused Judge Lance Ito of losing control of his courtroom. Unquote. A pivotal point of the trial was when Simpson tried on the glove found at the crime scene in the courtroom. Either it was too small for his hand or Simpson gave that impression. What was the aftermath? Here's more from the history website. Quote, in February 1997, Simpson was found liable for several charges related to the murders in a civil trial and was forced to award $33.5 million in compensatory and punitive damages to the victims' families. However, with few assets remaining after his long and costly legal battle, it was, he has avoided paying the damages, unquote. That, but that wasn't the last word. Although Simpson was later jailed in 2008 for committed armed robbery and kidnapping, what was the last word? It was a ghost-written book with O.J. Simpson's co-author with Pablo Fanjavis entitled "If I Do If I Did It: Confessions of the Killer," published in 2007. Here is part of a purchaser's review from an internet marketing website. Quote: He's not speaking in a straightforward, honest fashion, but reveals a lot in coded detail. A lot is revealed in Pablo Fanjavis' prologue, where he describes how the book was written and O.J.'s attitude throughout the process, and the games O.J. played at the end, trying to trick Pablo after the transcripts were submitted into taking the blame for writing fiction when it came to the description of the murders. Years later, it would actually come to fruition that O.J. would try to pull off the scam of attacking his own book, if one goes to ojsimpson.co, they'll find a video attempting to debunk this book by pointing out the inaccuracies that OJ planted in it. Pablo called OJ on this scam. OJ denied that he was trying to do it and then attempted it years later, thinking that no one will remember, I guess. And basically, people don't remember. OJ exposes the fact that someone actually was with him at the murder site. I believe this to be true. The autopsy showed that there were two knives used in the killing of Goldman. It also shows that Goldman landed a lot of punches via his bruised-up knuckles and the fact that he was a karate expert. Yet outside of a small cut on his left middle finger, O.J. had no bruise or signs that he'd been in any fight at all. But O.J. lied about a lot of obvious little details. He parked in Nicole's back driveway, not across the alley from her place. He probably used stolen house keys to get into the back gate rather than not just then just push the gate open because the lock didn't work. Also, Ron Goldman did not also enter the back gate, as O.J. writes, unquote. The Goldman family gained the rights to Simpson's book, If I Did It, as part of the civil case. The book had been cancelled at the time. It was originally published with the Goldman family being listed as a contributor. Could Simpson be retired on the basis of the contact, or retried, sorry, on the basis of the content of the book? The principle of double jeopardy means that for someone to be charged again for an offence that they have been previously acquitted of, that there must be new and compelling evidence. The book is just a book and, and is not evidence. The title is If I Did It, which is not an admission of guilt. Moving on, what is the next acquittal? The actor Robert Blake, who was described by Wikipedia, quote, Robert Blake, born Michael James Gubitosi, September 18, 1933, 
is an American actor. He's known for his starring roles in the film In Cold Blood and the US television series Beretta, unquote. Blake was tried and acquitted of the 2001 murder of his second wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley, in 2005. In November of the same year, he was found liable for her wrongful death in the California civil court. What was the background behind Bonnie Bakley's murder? An unhappy marriage, apparently. The history website indicates that Blake had not been a willing husband. Quote, During the criminal trial, Blake's defense team portrayed the aging actor as a rather pathetic figure and argued that Bakley had a pattern of sending letters and nude photos of herself to famous men and had trapped Blake into marrying her by becoming pregnant. The couple's daughter, Rose, was born in June 2000, in the June 2000, and though Bakley initiated, initially claimed that the child was fathered by Christian Brando, son of the celebrated actor Marlon Brando, a paternity test proved that the baby was Blake's. Blake and Bakley married in that November. Their brief unhappy union lasted until May the 4th, 2001, when Bakley was shot to death as she sat in a car outside a Los Angeles restaurant. Unquote. How did the murder occur? The Englert Forensics website provides a sequence. Quote, it was May the 4th, 2001, when Blake and his wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley, went to dinner at one of their longtime favorite restaurants in Studio City, California. Blake normally used the restaurant's valet service, but on this night he parked his car down the street behind a construction dumpster under a burnout street lamp. The couple had dinner that night and walked back to their car where Blake claims that to have suddenly realized he left a gun he carries for their protection in the restaurant booth. He left Bonnie at the car and returned to the restaurant. Blake claims that when he returned into the car after retrieving the gun, he found his wife Bonnie slumped in the passenger seat, bleeding copiously from two gunshot wounds, one to her right cheek and one to her shoulder. Blake ran to nearby residences and found Sean Stanek, a filmmaker, and asked him to call 911, then returned to the restaurant for more help. Bonnie Lee Bakley died in the car a short time later. She was 44 years old, unquote. <clears throat> Excuse me. Englert Forensics assisted the prosecution in the criminal case and also the plaintiff in the civil case. Hence her perspective is one of guilt. Why wouldn't the police believe Blake's story that he had only discovered the dying victim who had allegedly been murdered by someone else? Here's more from the Englert Forensics website. Quote, there are a number of concerning details in the, in the Blake case. First, Blake claims to have carried a gun because he was worried someone was, well, someone was stalking his wife. However, he parked his car on a dark street far from the restaurant. Also, nobody remembers Blake returning to the restaurant to retrieve a gun, and the table had already been bust, and nobody reported finding a gun. Blake also left his wife behind at the car without the keys, so she had no way to roll up the window or turn on the heater, despite the cold evening and her lightweight nylon outfit. Patrons of the restaurant remember Blake coming in distraught and shouting that his wife had been shot, then drinking two glasses of water before returning to the scene of the shooting. These details were all troubling to the police, and on April 18, 2002, the actor was arrested for the murder of his wife. After the police questioned the couple's bodyguard, Earl Caldwell, and unearthed the murder weapon, a World War I-era handgun, Caldwell was also arrested for conspiracy to commit murder. Unquote. What were the verdicts? Again from the Englert Forensics website. Quote, on March the 16th, 2005, Blake was finally acquitted of murdering his wife, though the jury remained deadlocked 11 to 1 on the solicitation of murder count until the judge dismissed the charge. Blake's longtime bodyguard, Earl Caldwell, was also acquitted. Unquote. What was the basis for the solicitation of murder count? According to the Engler, to Engler Forensics, Blake had solicited others, solicited others to murder his wife. Quote, Blake's trial proved to be a goldmine for tabloids due to his celebrity, celebrity status. Blake also granted several jailhouse interviews to famous reporters. This, along with former stuntmen from Blake's old movie days, 
a minister and a private investigator all stepping forward to claim Blake had offered them money to kill his wife, set jury selection back to square one, unquote. It seems that Blake may have been fortunate that the jury deadlocked and the judge dismissed the charge. We have time for one more acquittal. I expect many listeners will remember the media circus surrounding the tragic death of Kaylee Anthony, who was who described by Wikipedia. Quote, Kaylee Marie Anthony, August 9, 2005 to 2008, was an American girl who lived in Orlando, Florida, with her mother, Casey Marie Anthony, born March 19, 1986, and her maternal grandparents, George and Cindy Anthony. On July the 15, 2008, she was reported missing in a 911 call made by Cindy, who said she had not seen Kaylee for 31 days and that Casey's car smelled like a dead body had been inside it. Cindy said Casey had, been, had given varied explanations as to Kaylee's whereabouts before finally telling her that she had not seen Kaylee for weeks. Kaylee, Casey lied to detectives, telling them Kaylee had been kidnapped by a nanny on June the 9th and that she'd been trying to find her, too frightened to alert the authorities, unquote. What were the charges against Casey Anthony? Uh, the following is from Wikipedia, quote, On October the 14th, 2008, Casey Anthony was, indi- was indicted by a grand jury on charges of first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter of a child, of all counts of providing false information to the police. She was later arrested. I think with that, we have to go into the break, Justina. Yes, we'll continue after this short break, and you're listening to Too Good to Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. that are lower than low on food that's fresher than fresh then shop at Kroger we give you more ways to save on the fresh you love with tools like the Kroger app where you can find personalized coupons on top of weekly sales giving you prices that are lower than the everyday low Kroger fresh for everyone it's the big $10 sale so mix and match and get two three four five or even ten for ten dollars with your card so many great deals Kroger fresh for everyone And before the break, we were discussing the charges against Casey Anthony. And Dad, you were quoting from Wikipedia. Can you please continue with the quote? Judge John Jordan ordered that she be held without bond. On October 21st, 2008, the charges of child neglect were dropped against Casey, according to the state attorney's office, because the evidence proved that the child was deceased. The state sought an indictment on the legally appropriate charges. On October the 28th, Anthony was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to all charges. On April the 13th, 2009, prosecutors announced that they planned to seek the death penalty in the case, unquote. What is the background? So much happened over almost three years that we can only take a high-level view. A CNN article from June of 2018 asked what happened. Heard a bare fact from the article, quote, the story first broke on July the 15th, 2008, when Casey's mother, Cindy Anthony, frantically called police in Orlando, Florida, to report that she had she'd just learned that her granddaughter, Kaylee, was missing and had been for 31 days. Casey told police that Kaylee was with a sitter named Zaneda Gonzalez, or Zani, but that story turned out to be made up. When police took Casey to Universal Studios, where she claimed she worked, to investigate, they learned she lied about having a job there. Over the next few months, hundreds would search for Kaylee while law enforcement looked for clues. What they found wouldn't lead to Kaylee, but it did lead to the October indictment of her mother on seven criminal counts, 
including first-degree murder. Casey pleaded not guilty. In December 2008, Kaylee's decomposed remains were found in a wooded area not far from the Anthony home. Two years later, at a closely watched trial, prosecution alleged that Casey used chloroform on her daughter and suffocated her by putting duct tape over the little girl's mouth and nose. Casey's defence team presented a different theory, that Kaylee accidentally drowned in the family, family's pool, unquote. Did the prosecution prove that Casey had purchased or otherwise obtained a chloroform? Not exactly. An ABC News article dated July the 1st, 2011, just before closing arguments of the trial, indicated that Casey would not be tied to using chloroform. chloroform. Quote, Earlier in the trial, Cindy Anthony stunned prosecutors when she said she was responsible for searches for chloroform on the family computer in March 2008 months before little Kaylee Anthony disappeared. The prosecution had argued in its opening statement that it was Casey Anthony who had searched for chloroform 84 times as well as neck breaking and household weapons, unquote. Maybe Cindy Anthony was trying to cover up for her daughter. What else is in the CNN article from 2018? The medical examiner, examiner Dr. Jan Garavaglia, in comments after the trial, focuses on no credible explanation for the disappearance, plus the deliberate hiding in the body and the duct tape on the face. She stated there is absolutely no proof of accidental death. What did law enforcement have to say? Detective John Allen thought that Casey Anthony's behaviour was strange during her arrest. She talked about her ambition to be a personal trainer, trainer rather than fretting about her lost daughter. Was a member of the jury interviewed for the CNN article? No, but an ABC News article from July of 2011 includes comments from a member of the jury. Quote, Casey Anthony juror Jennifer Ford said that she and the other jurors cried and were sick to their stomachs, sick to our stomachs, after voting to acquit Casey Anthony of charges that she killed her two-year-old daughter Kaylee. I did not say she was innocent," said Ford, who had previously only been identified as juror number three. I just said there was not enough evidence. If you cannot prove what the crime was, you cannot determine what the punishment should be. Unquote. Casey Anthony was found guilty of four counts of providing false information to police, with two of those counts being overturned on appeal in 2013. With that, it's time for the first question. What's the relationship between the Borden sisters and their stepmother, Abby, not close? Not very close, no. Just basically getting along for everyone's sake. What was the relationship like between the Borden sisters and their father, Andrew? It was closer, but not necessarily very close. So they would discuss some things, but not all. Was Emma protective of her younger sister, Lizzie? Yes. Why was Lizzie particularly involved in the Congregationalist Church? Basically, as a place to feel included in something and try to share the similar beliefs. So somewhere that felt safe. Why did Andrew gift real estate to various branches of Abby's family, with his wife Abby receiving a house. Basically just to be generous, so no ill intentions. A few weeks before the murders, with the sisters demanding and receiving a rental property from their father for one dollar, why did they why did the father sell back the property to their why did they sell back the property to their father for five thousand dollars? To make a profit. So they wanted money, so there's always issues surrounding money. Did those property transactions result in increased tension within the household? Yes, among other tension that was already occurring. So there was always issues surrounding money. For several days before the murders, had the entire household been violently ill? Yes. Was the cause food poisoning from mutton left on the stove for use in meals over several days? That was partially it, yes. That was part of it but it was also combined with normal cold-like symptoms. So it was a combination of food poisoning and getting a cold? Correct. Night before the murders, did the visit of John Morris, the brother of Emma and Lizzie's biological mother, to stay and to discuss business matters with Andrew Borden, raise tensions further? Yes, but tensions were already pretty high. 
On August the 4th, 1892, did John Morse leave around 8.48 a.m. to buy a pair of oxen and visit his niece in Fall River, planning to return to the Borland home for lunch at noon? That's correct, yes. Did Andrew Borland leave for his morning walk sometime after 9 a.m.? Yes. Why did Abby go upstairs between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed in the guest room when one of Lizzie's and Emma's regular chores was cleaning the guest room? Basically, she just felt that was the right thing to do, so she wanted to make sure that it looked put together. Was Abby facing her killer sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. when she was upstairs? Yes. Was Abby struck about 18 times with a hatchet? Yes, that's correct. When Andrew Border returned from his morning walk at around 10.30 a.m., why did his key fail to open the door with the maid, Maggie Sullivan, opening it from the inside? He was using the wrong key. With Abby now dead as Andrew Borden arrived, were Maggie Sullivan and Lizzie Borden the only individuals alive in the house? At that point, yes. Why did Lizzie state that she had been removed that why did Lizzie state that she had then removed Andrew's boots and helped him into his slippers before he lay down on the sofa for a nap when the crime scene pictures showed Andrew with his boots on? Basically the information got mixed up. So typically he would get ready for a nap like that, but in this case he did not. So Lizzie was just confused. Yes, she was not trying to lie. Was Maggie Sullivan in her third room, her third floor room when just before 11.10 a.m. she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, come quick, father's dead, somebody came in and killed him? That's correct, yes. Was Andrew Borden's time of death around 11 a.m.? Yes. When the murder, was the murder weapon found in the basement with a fresh-looking break in the handle with an ash and dust on the head to make it look like a... Like, make it look like a news for a long time. Yes, that's correct. Who put that hatchet in the basement? The murderer. Why were thousands of townspeople allowed to visit the unprotected crime scene? Basically, the authorities had not dealt with something like this recently, so they didn't know the proper protocol. So this happens many times when authorities just don't understand the proper protocol and during such a panic, they don't remember to keep the crime scene closed. So in this case, it was just an oversight by the authorities. During the week before her arrest, did Lizzie Borden burn a dress that she claimed was stained with paint? Correct, yes. Was the dress actually blood-stained? There were remnants of blood, yes. What was the motive for the murder of Abby Borden? Money. What was the motive for the murder of Andrew Borden? Also money. Was the reason for the verdict that it was hard to believe that a respectable church-going lady from a prominent family in the community was capable of committing axe murders on family members? Partially, yes. And it's also in a lot of cases, it's hard for people to believe a woman in general would commit such a crime. So generally, people believe that males are capable of such a crime, but not females. Was the murderer Lizzie Borden? That can't exactly be commented on, since the crime scene had to speak for itself, and the proper means of judicial process has to be followed. But the evidence points directly to the murder. What else can you say about the acquittal of Lizzie Borden? Basically, that the hard part with the whole judicial process is a lot of it depends on the judge and the jury, and also the legal teams. So there are many cases where, depending on what people can afford with, with paying a lawyer, for example, they can be either defended very well or not defended at all. It also depends on the jury members and the judge and these deciding factors. So it's very, you could say, almost biased in a way where there are other factors in play, not just the actual trial. Changing subject to the acquittal of O.J. Simpson, why did he have no alibi for the time frame of the murders? Basically, since he wasn't being truthful for where he was, so he didn't want to tell on all, all, all of that. Although challenging court, was for the forensic evidence trustworthy? Did the single leather glove found outside Simpson's home match the glove found at the crime scene? That's correct, yes. So both are correct? Yes. 
Did Simpson have a wound on his hand with his blood having a DNA match to drops found at the Brentwood crime scene? Yes. Was Nicole Brown Simpson's blood discovered on a pair of socks found at Simpson's Rockingham estate? That's correct, yes. Was Simpson's recently purchased Tolelo knife used by the killer? Yes. Did shoe prints in the blood and, and at the crime scene match the type of shoe that Simpson owned? Yes, but those prints match many different shoes, so they weren't super unique. Why weren't the knife or shoes ever found by the police? Because they were disposed of, so they were far away from where the police were searching. Did Nicole Brown's mother leave her glasses at the restaurant? Yes. Why did Ron Goldman volunteer to stop by Nicole Brown's house to drop them off? Basically as a favour, so it was genuinely just a favour. What was the thumping noise heard at around 10.45pm by house guest Cato Kalin at Simpson's Rocky Hill Mansion just a couple of miles down the road from Nicole Brown's home? Basically a fight breaking up. Were there blood, hair and fibres from Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman in Simpson's Rockingham Mansion and in his Ford Bronco? Yes. When Simpson tried on the glove found at the crime scene in the courtroom, why didn't the glove appear to fit? Because it didn't fit. Was there an attempt to frame O.J. Simpson for the crimes as argued by his defence team? Not exactly, no. There wasn't really an attempt to, but it was also difficult since they previously had a relationship, though there was evidence that would be found in anybody who had a relationship in the vehicle, house, etc. So some of the evidence was overlapping with normal everyday evidence, while their evidence could have appeared to be planted or could have been because he did commit the murder. What was the motive for the murder of Nicole Brown? There were basically two motives. So one, to basically teach her a lesson and two, to make someone's life easier, so to make it so they didn't have to deal with her anymore. Don't think we've got time for another question before the break. No, we'll continue after the short break, and you're listening to Too Good to Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xcbn.net. conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more. Wish the headlines would just stop? It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. You may not know it, but support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through the friendly people at Church's Care. At Church's Care, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Churches Care helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's churchescare.com. C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S care.com. We look forward to serving you. Welcome back to Too Good to Be True. And before the break, we're going through the questions and the psychic insight. And we are discussing the trial of O.J. Simpson. Dad, can you please continue with the questions? What was the motive for the murder of Ron Goldman? He just knew too much. Did Ron Goldman witness the murder of Nicole Brown? Yes. Why did Simpson call for the book, If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer, published in 2007? Just to make money, he thought it was ironic in a way. Is there a lot of detail coded into the book? 
Yes and no. There's some information. But again, he viewed the whole thing in kind of an ironic way. So there is false information. Did Simpson try to co- trick his co-author, uh, Pablo Fenjavis, into taking the blame for writing fiction when it came to the descriptions of the murders? Yes. Did Simpson try to debunk the book after it was published? Yes. Was Simpson seen by a witness at the murder scene? That's what the witness claims, yes, is that they saw someone fitting his description. Did the autopsy show that there were two knives used in the killing of Ron Goldman? Yes. Was there more than one assailant responsible for the deaths of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman? Yes, there were. If if Ron Goldman landed a lot of punches being a karate expert, why did Simpson, outside of a small cut on his left middle finger, have no bruises nor signs that he'd been in any fight at all? There's one piece of evidence that points to that. He either didn't do it or he wasn't the only one involved. In the book, did Simpson lie about various obvious details? Yes. What else can you say about the acquittal of O.J. Simpson? That a large population of people believe he did commit the murder. But again, it's hard to really put someone away from murder since the evidence has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. So in this trial, there were just too many questions, including, for example, the glove not fitting, which would have been an obvious detail. But it also has to be taken into account that there are multiple people that the glove may have been fitting the other person and not OJ or anyone else. So the evidence was just too, you could say, too slim in this case, where if it could be proven there were multiple assailants, the trial might have went further. Changing subject to Robert Blake, when visiting the restaurant in Studio City, did Blake park the car down the street behind a construction dumpster under a burned-out street lamp? Yes. After the couple had walked back to their car, did Blake go back to the the restaurant to retrieve the gun he carried for their protection? That's correct, yes. Did he retrieve the gun from the restaurant? Yes. Did Blake leave his wife behind in the car without the keys so she had no way to roll out the windows or turn on, turn on the heater? He was in such a hurry to go back and grab the gun, he didn't think. When Blake returned to the restaurant to get more help after his wife had been shot, did he drink two glasses of water? Yes. Who owned the murder weapon, a World War One era handgun? A gun collector. Why was the couple's bodyguard, Earl Caldwell, arrested for a conspiracy to commit murder? There was evidence that linked him directly to the murder. What was the motive for the murder of Robert Blake's wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley? Basically, you could say it was just a convenience, so it was easier with her dead compared to her life. There seemed to be a lack of both eyewitnesses and of physical evidence. Was this the case? That's correct, yes. Why was there a lack of eyewitnesses? Uh, surely gunshots from a car, from close to a car in a street, should have alerted some individuals to see what was happening. Basically, a lot of people figured that other people would rush out and see what was happening. There is kind of the bystander effect where everyone believed everyone else would be taking care of it. Why was there a lack of physical evidence, such as fingerprints? Was evidence hidden or destroyed? More hidden, so the murderer knew what they were doing and not to leave this physical evidence behind. Why did the jury decide to find Blake not guilty? There wasn't enough evidence, so there wasn't beyond a reasonable doubt that it was his fault. Besides a hung jury, why did the judge dismiss the solicitation of murder count when apparently several individuals claimed that they were offered money by Blake to kill his wife? There was an actual proof, so it was kind of a he said, she said account, so the judge cannot prove that these events had occurred. What else can you say about the acquittal of Robert Blake? There's a lot more information missing, though unfortunately there's not much evidence to go off of, since the murderer was very careful. Was there someone else other than Robert Blake involved in the murder of his wife? There are other ties that could be looked into. So there are other possible suspects that weren't looked at closely enough. Changing subject to Casey Anthony, on July the 15th, 2008, did her mother, Cindy Anthony, report that her granddaughter, 
Kaylee missing in a 9-11-9-1-1 call after she had not seen her for 31 days. That's correct, yes. At the time, did Casey Anthony's car smell like a dead body had been inside it? Yes. What was the cause of the smell? The cause of the smell was garbage combined with some type of remains, animal or human. Had Casey Anthony given her mother, Cindy, various explanations as to Kaylee's whereabouts before finally telling her that she had not seen Kaylee for weeks? Correct, yes. Did Casey Anthony lie to detectives telling them Kaylee had been kidnapped by a nanny on June the 9th and that she'd been trying to find her but was too frightened to alert the authorities? That's also correct, yes. Had the prosecution not sought the death penalty for first-degree murder, would it have been made easier for the jury to reach a guilty, guilty verdict? 100%, yes. Why did the prosecution of Casey Anthony proceed, even though Kaylee's body had not been found at the time? They were emotionally charged, so since this case was so big, it became a personal case for them, which was the main mistake. Why did Casey Anthony think that she could get away with lying about working at Universal Studios? She lies about many things, so her history in the past showed that her lies do work, so she thought she could keep getting away with it. Did Casey Anthony assist at all with finding Kaylee's body? No. What did it take until December 2008 for Kaylee's decomposed body to be found in a wooded area not far from the Anthony's home? It was well hidden, so it was almost impossible with the natural landscape that it was just very difficult to find. Was there any truth in the allegation that Kaylee had chloroform used on her, followed by suffocation by duct tape, being put over her mouth and nose? Yes, there is a lot of evidence for this. As argued by the prosecution, had Casey Anthony searched on the family computer for chloroform 84 times as well as neck breaking and household weapons? Yes. Was Cindy Anthony responsible for searches of her chloroform on the family computer in March of 2008, months before little Kaylee Anthony disappeared? No, that was not her that was searching. Was Cindy Anthony trying to cut? Was Cindy Anthony trying to cover up for her daughter by stating in court that she had searched for chloroform on the family computer? Yes, she was trying to cover up for her daughter. Did Kaylee accidentally drown in the family swimming pool? No. Would the body been found in two plastic bags within a canvas bag thrown behind a rotting log a couple of blocks from the family home with dirt tape still present on the face? Why would there be a theory that it was an accident? Basically, some people want to believe that there was an accident, so that's why her body was disposed of. But again, if there is an accident, someone doesn't duct tape a person after they are done. If the death was not an accident, what was the motive for the murder? Unfortunately, some people think children are burdens. So some people choose to have children or sit around themselves with children. And after a while, they don't want the child anymore. Did the verdict just come down to uncertainty of how Kaylee died by suffocation or by drowning, even though the body was was found, didn't make it appear as if it was an accident? That and also if it was premeditated or not. So if there's a moment that it happened or premeditated beforehand, and also if a mother could actually do this to a child. So in general, it's very difficult for people to believe that a mother could kill her own child. So if the charge had been for second-degree murder, that is, it was not premeditated, there would have been a great likelihood of a guilty verdict. Correct, yes. After Casey Anthony was arrested, why did she talk about her life and ambition to become a personal trainer rather than being frantic about her missing daughter? She didn't care about her missing daughter. Why did the jurors conclude there was insufficient evidence to convict Casey Anthony? Was it because Kaylee's body was found too late for useful physical evidence? Yes. Why were the jurors upset with their with their verdict? Was it because they had to follow the judge's instructions rather than their personal beliefs? It was just an upsetting case for all. So hearing all the details, having the whole family involved, it was just upsetting in general. So it's either very difficult for these jurors, and with the case being so large in the media, this didn't help either. How could Casey Anthony claim that her two-year-old daughter accidentally drowned and that she had lied for three years? 
be more believable than the evidence the prosecution presented? Again, it depends on who's on the jury. So many jury members followed more of a rational thinking versus thinking about the fact that someone can make up the lies. So basically ensured they believed all the lies. What else can you say about Casey Anthony's acquittal? This is one case where there's just so much information and leads directly to her. So there are some people out there that just don't have any empathy for other people or even their own children. So the worst thing that people can do is to continue to give her attention since that's all she wants is everything to be about her. So is there a serious personality flaw? There's some major flaws with her, yes. Again, only medical professionals can diagnose mental illnesses, but there needs to be an evaluation of her again. And there's many people out there that can manipulate, lie, have narcissistic personality traits, and even convince psychologists and psychiatrists that they are not mentally ill. Will the truth of guilt or innocence, will the truth of guilt or innocence for any of these acquittals ever come out? There's a possibility, yes, which for every case, there's a possibility for more evidence. But the ones that may come out more is, the case of the, is in the case of Casey Anthony. There's a lot more, and she is not ready to leave the spotlight. So there's going to be more and more information about her and even the case coming out. What can we learn from those these four infamous acquittals? Basically, that the judicial process is something that has been established, but is also difficult. So it can go one of two ways, where the right person is actually sent to jail, or it can go the other way, where the right person is set free. But there's also a third scenario where the wrong person is charged. So in some cases, it's better that nobody goes if the evidence is not enough. But again, it's very complicated since some people are very careful with their killings and can even emotionally manipulate other people. How do people deal with a situation where they are innocent and acquitted? where most people believe that they are guilty. This makes their lives very difficult. They're ready in the grieving process of losing a loved one. So again, social media can be a great tool, but social media can also attack people. So even if you believe someone is guilty or innocent, just not putting any comments that are not nice, not sharing mis misinformation, and again, letting the authorities and officials handle the cases, but also sharing the case in a positive way. So, for example, sharing justice for Kaylee is important, but not attacking Casey in the process. So try to be as positive as you can about the cases without actually attacking the people. That was the last answer. Is more truth to, re re to be revealed about the death of Kaylee Anthony too good to be true? That depends on what you are prepared to believe. Well, we don't have much more time left, Justina. Um, what can you say about the Facebook page? Yes, you can visit us at our Facebook page at Too Good To Be True with the first two spelled T-W-O or our Instagram page at T-W-O-G-T-B-T and you can go ahead suggest future shows, any comments on today's show and as always, thank you so much to the listeners and we look forward to next week's show. be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas. To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello
Costello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. Companies that set out to change the world should stand for something, something that matters. For Tanium, it was managing and protecting the world's growing number of endpoints. Tanium empowers organizations to embrace digital transformation and change the way people both work and live. They help critical government agencies see what's coming, protect and defend five branches of the U.S. military, and more than half of the Fortune 100 rely on Tanium to manage and secure their critical assets. To learn more, visit Tanium.com.